Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Doctor Will See You Now, Divination, Witchcraft, and Knowledge. Suppose your child gets sick. She's feverish, unable to sleep, complaining of soreness. What would you do? Presumably go consult a doctor in hopes of getting some medicine to make your daughter well again. You'd expect the doctor to break out some diagnostic equipment, try to discover the cause of the illness, and prescribe a course of treatment. To this extent, your experience would be just like that of someone in the same predicament in a pre-colonial African culture. Those cultures also had doctors who could determine the cause of sickness and other misfortunes, and who would recommend a remedy. Admittedly, the client experience was not exactly the same. Rather than a stethoscope, the doctor might use a basket full of symbolic objects, cowrie shells, kola nuts, trays filled with sand, or a divining stick. The underlying cause for the malady might be a dissatisfied ancestor or a malevolent witch rather than a virus, and the treatment would not be pills collected at a drugstore, but perhaps an herbal remedy or the sacrifice of an animal. Certainly, the details would differ from one culture to another, even from one village to another and one individual healer to another. As always, we need to beware of making hasty generalizations about African traditions as if they were all just one single belief system. For instance, whereas witchcraft played little or no role in some traditional African societies, it's been described as a central factor in the life of the Mbugwe people of Tanzania. According to an anthropological study from the early 1960s, the Mbugwe feared that as much as half their population were witches and had an essentially pessimistic view of human nature, which led them to avoid dealing with anyone other than a small group of trusted intimates. Many people, and indeed in the bad old days, many anthropologists have taken this sort of thing to confirm their prejudices about traditional Africans. Whereas we are enlightened, modern and rational, they are primitive, beset by irrational beliefs about magic and imaginary threats, and devoted to superstition rather than anything approximating science. In short, we have real doctors, they have witch doctors. Yet a closer look at these aspects of African cultures turns out to be a good way to challenge the condescending opposition between us and them. The popular conception of traditional African peoples frames them, along with other indigenous cultures, as a kind of negative image of everything we admire and consider modern. You'll notice no group ever thinks of itself as primitive or irrational. The Yorubas, who use cowrie shells to learn about their future welfare, are not crazy, any more than the Malagasis who furnish their houses as a mirror image of the zodiac and do divination with sand-covered boards and seeds. So it's not only out of simple respect, but also in hopes of deeper insight into these cultures and the structure of all human attempts to reach knowledge that we now want to ask about the philosophical underpinnings of such practices. To some small extent, we already know the answer. In particular, the ideas we surveyed concerning divinity among the Yoruba are directly relevant to their practices of divination, which have incidentally spread across the world through Yoruba cultural influence on the African diaspora. Also in the 1960s, the anthropologist William Bascom worked with a Yoruba man named Maranoro Salako, recording him as he recited a staggering number of verses that convey Salako's hard-earned expertise as a diviner. The deities called Orisha 
play a central role, with one particular god, called Olufon, responsible for Sadako's own gift of insight, and the god Orunmila as the original bestower of divination upon humankind. Another Orisha, Osanyin, is the god of medicine and herbalism. Also relevant here are the beliefs about the human person we discussed in episode 19. We talked about the seat of personality that the Yoruba call Ori. It is the carrier or source of the destiny revealed in divination. So, we can already see that what may at first glance look like mere superstitions are in fact embedded in a complex web of cultural, religious, and philosophical ideas. The proficient diviner or healer needs to be a master of these ideas and their interconnections. As one Yoruba verse has it, if we don't have great wisdom, we cannot learn strong medicine. The skeptic might object by returning to that comparison between the diviner and the Western medical practitioner. Western medicine has systematic procedures and follows rigorous rules of reasoning. Don't diviners, by contrast, just use their intuition or wait for a secret to be revealed to them? The answer to this question is not a simple one, in part because of the aforementioned variation across the peoples of Africa. In some divinatory rituals, there is indeed a fairly straightforward reading or seeing of the result. Thus, an account of the Yaka in the Democratic Republic of Congo speaks of how the diviner may just see the answer to a question in a kind of dreamlike image or read it directly off an inanimate object. It is also emphasized in many cultures that the diviner consultant is not really the source of the answer divulged to the client, this comes from the gods, or from ancestors, or even from the divinatory instrument itself. Thus, a consultant from the Niole people of eastern Uganda remarked to one anthropologist, I don't know anything, I just speak. On the other hand, considerable interpretation and expertise may be needed to determine the result of a given consultation. One widespread technique involves placing many small objects in a basket and then shaking it, looking to see which objects have risen to the top, and then repeating this for further information or confirmation. The diagnosis emerges from the interrelation between the objects seen. Thus, to give an example from Ndebu divination that is misleadingly simple but at least easy to explain, if a piece of red clay signifying malign intent turns up next to a small doll representing elders, this could mean that a misfortune has been caused by a sorcerer who is kin to the chief. As the anthropologist who reported this example remarked, the dominant unit of divination is not the individual symbol, but the symbolic configuration. It should also be stressed that divination does not always use symbols with simple or obvious meaning. Again, there is variation here, even within a single technique and within a single culture. To return to the example of casting cowrie shells, two shells that land with their backs facing one another can be an omen meaning good marriage, which is pretty straightforward, but generally, the interpretation involves a complicated and not literally symbolic method, which revolves around memorizing the meanings of various patterns among the shells. Furthermore, it is not only the diviner who is responsible for determining the outcome of a consultation, because the client is typically closely involved. He or she sets the initial terms of the inquiry by posing questions or providing the names of persons, living or dead, who are suspected of causing a misfortune. The client may also work together with the consultant to perform the ritual or interpret its results. 
This undermines the common conception of divination as involving uncanny or extraordinary individuals who divulge secrets learned through an unexplained access to special, perhaps revelatory, sources of knowledge. Both these points, the complexity of the interpretation and the cooperative nature of the enterprise, have been made concerning a traditional healing technique from South Africa in which various objects are scattered on a grass mat. As a study of this ritual puts it, the objects land in a configuration that is read through a rhythmic verbal interaction between client and healer. Another reason to deny that magical rituals involve simplistic naivete is that the clients are far from credulous. They may test diviners to see whether it is worth taking their advice seriously by posing fake and leading questions, or by demanding that the consultant work out why the client has come without being told. Multiple oracles may also be used to answer a single question, thus effectively getting a second or third opinion. The fact that misfortunes may be sent by a client's recent ancestors or by those who live close by means that it is wise to seek out diviners who live further away and are impartial, having no personal acquaintance with the situation. It's also appreciated that some divinatory techniques are more open to manipulation than others. Among the Lugbara, a standard oracular device is the so-called rubbing stick, a stalk of sorghum that is rubbed with grass while reciting the names of possible culprits who may be behind a misfortune. When the grass catches upon the mentioning of a given name, this is an indication where guilt lies. Since the diviner could obviously decide when to make the grass seem to catch, other uncontrolled random rituals are used to confirm the result. By the way, there's a nice story about this same group that illustrates both cultural variation and the skepticism involved in traditional divination. When an anthropologist informed some Lugbara that the Nuer people sometimes offer a vegetable to their ancestors under the pretense that it is an animal sacrifice, the Lugbara were incredulous and remarked that their own ghosts could see and taste as well as anyone and were not as stupid as those of other peoples. Finally, we should point out that even if these practices involve an appeal to supernatural explanations and ways of knowing, it's not as if these cultures account for everything by referring to magic, the ancestors, the gods, and so on. As we've said, some cultures lack magical practices where others have them. The Maasai of East Africa do not blame illnesses on supernatural causes. Among those who do offer such explanations, natural accounts are also given when they are available. Natural remedies, like plant-based medicines, should be used for natural problems, while good magic is for fighting evil magic. As a proverb has it, sword fights a sword. The presence of naturalistic explanation has not always been appreciated by outside observers of these cultures. As one scholar complains, the Swahili word uchawi just means misfortune in a quite general sense, yet it is often translated as witchcraft. Which is not to deny that something we might legitimately call witchcraft is an important part of some African cultures. The idea of witches is of course found in many societies around the world, including early modern Europe. Yet again, we find a lot of variation across the continent here, though the variation doesn't extend to worries about ladies with green skin, pointy hats, and flying broomsticks. In some cultures, witches are thought to be predominantly women, in others not. And in our reading for this episode, we didn't come across anything about hats or broomsticks, though actually there is talk of witches traveling in unconventional ways 
or having unusual skin color, for instance, ash white. As these points already begin to suggest, witches can perhaps best be understood as an inversion of the properly human. They purposefully do evil instead of good, eat salt to quench thirst, travel at night instead of the day, may go naked or stand on their heads, and can even become non-human animals. They hide among your own local community. It's been remarked that if the African village is a moral universe, then witches too must be part of the village, the malevolence a distorted funhouse mirror of the communal ideal that binds each group together. When anthropologists apply the term witchcraft in an African context, they have in mind something different from the healers and diviners we've been discussing for most of this episode. They also distinguish between witches and sorcerers. Whereas witches are born with their wicked character and fearsome powers, which are often thought to be inherited through a family line, sorcery can be learned and in principle be performed by anyone. But cultural beliefs and practices don't always adhere to such neat boundaries. Some witches do both good and bad, so that an effective diviner or healer may be more readily suspected of evil witchcraft. And diviners, like witches, often find themselves with an unsought gift, which may first manifest itself as dreams or manic episodes. Still, diviner consultants are an integrated and valued part of society, whereas witches are the ultimate outsiders. Thus, as the introduction to a collection of essays on this subject says, a society composed entirely of witches makes no more sense than a society composed entirely of madmen. It is perhaps the belief in witchcraft that most inspires accusations of primitiveness and irrationality against traditional African culture. But as anthropologists and ethnographers have been keen to stress over the last few decades, the understanding of witchcraft and other so-called magical phenomena is not frozen in time, a kind of leftover from some benighted past. Just as traditional healing has continued to exist and evolve alongside modern medicine, ideas about traditional medicine, divination, and witchcraft have developed in the modern post-colonial period, this despite extensive efforts at suppression on the part of colonial powers. The Manjako of Guinea-Bissau even have ceremonies at which they discuss how their traditions should be adapted to deal with new situations and influences. The process of cultural adaptation is a long-standing one, as we can see from the fact that many magical practices in Africa have, over centuries, incorporated material from Islamic and Christian societies, for example, Arabic book divination or astrology. Let's return to our central question about the rationality of the beliefs and practices we've been discussing in this episode. The many anthropologists and small number of philosophers who have engaged with this question realize that it seems ridiculous to label whole cultures as irrational. Surely these are not, to recycle the phrase, societies composed entirely of madmen. Diviners and their clients, and even those who accuse innocent people of being witches, are clearly rational in the sense that they have justifications for their beliefs. When the diviner identifies the enemy who has caused your misfortune, the claim comes backed with a well-established rationale. This may be as simple as grass sticking on the rubbing stick at a certain time, or as complicated as an interpretation given for a series of objects turning up in a basket or array of cowrie shells. And those rationales are themselves woven into a rich tapestry of other cultural, religious, and moral convictions. So even a stern critic should go no further than Kwame Anthony Appiah did when he wrote, 
What's wrong with the theory of witchcraft is not that it doesn't make sense, but that it isn't true. The question, though, is not really whether the diviners are reasoning, in the sense of seeking explanations for events and looking to a standard of what counts as a good explanation that is accepted within their community. It's obvious that they are doing that. The question is whether the whole system within which their beliefs are produced is itself irrational, because the system lacks features that any acceptable theory should possess. These would be the features we demand of science, for example, consistency and being open to refutation. We've seen that, in at least some respects, the divination and witchcraft theory, as we might call it, does pretty well by these standards. Clients are skeptical enough to test consultants and to seek confirmation for the results they get, for example. Yet, there is the lingering suspicion that, since the causes invoked in the magical explanations are not real, there must be something epistemologically defective about the whole theory. One worry might be the following. Even if a given consultant can be suspected of lying or incompetence, which is why the client needs to do tests and seek confirmation, it doesn't seem that the whole concept of divination or witchcraft is being tested or questioned. The aforementioned Manjako assume that witches use their magic to prevent rain from falling, causing crops to fail. There's a good reason to be suspicious of this, namely that in doing so, the witches would be harming themselves along with everyone else. This puzzle is not solved by reconsidering the whole theory, but by shrugging and saying, rain witches are just stupid. Isn't that rather like a biologist discarding experimental results simply because they conflict with her theory? But if the worry is that there is no empirical confirmation for divination and witchcraft, then this worry is misplaced. Brief reflection shows that there will frequently be confirmation. Diviners will sometimes get predictions right, and sometimes, when a witch is discovered, people will recover from illness. Then too, witches are secretive and even honest diviners are not infallible, so it would be ridiculous to expect a perfect match between this theory and all available evidence nor should we overlook the power of the placebo effect. Merely consulting an expert, in this case the diviner consultant, may have a powerful salutary effect on the client whether or not genuinely efficacious medicine is involved at any stage. This is exactly why Europeans could believe in Hippocratic and Galenic medicine for about two millennia, and historians of science and philosophy don't go around alleging that all pre-modern European doctors were irrational. But the most interesting and illuminating way to approach the divination and witchcraft theory is not to compare it to a scientific hypothesis, it is rather to attend to the wider range of functions the theory plays in its own societal context. The theory does involve a search for explanation, just like Western medicine or particle physics does, but it involves much more than that. The intimate and nuanced interaction between diviner and client presupposes, reinforces, and strengthens good relationships within a community. We can see this even in the choice of divinatory instruments, which are sometimes domestic in nature, kitchen tools, for example, so that a community context is inscribed into the very mechanics of the consultation. It has been well said that divination is a form of social analysis in the course of which hidden conflicts between persons and factions are brought to light. So, if divination and witchcraft is a theory, it is not only about causation, but about ethics and the political community. Along the same lines, we should remember the wider worldview in which this theory developed. 
If you have a deep conviction that you are living in a fundamentally good and well-ordered world, perhaps one overseen by divine providence, then it is only sensible to seek out the cause of illnesses, crop failures, injuries that happen by accident, and so on. Kwame Djeke has drawn attention to sayings of the Akan people, nothing just happens, and everything has its reason. If misfortunes do not occur at random, why not suppose that they are happening because of an angry ancestor, a jealous neighbor, or a witch? So divination and witchcraft theory also form part of what philosophers call a theodicy, an explanation of why there is evil and suffering in a world that remains fundamentally good. As a closing note, something we've mentioned just in passing in this episode is that not all witches in Africa are women. But this is not to say that magical phenomena, including witchcraft, divination, and spirit possession, are in no way gendered. In fact, that is often the case. For example, among some peoples, expert professional sorcerers are usually men, while amateurs are typically women. And in many, if not most groups, diviners are typically men. And there is much, much more to say about gender attitudes in traditional African society. We'll be saying at least some of it next time, or at least that's our prediction, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. (music) 